Hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. I'm really excited for this episode with Ashley and Carrie. Uh, there are two amazing individuals that are doing some really amazing work um, within the trumpet community, and I'm excited for you to be able to hear their story and to get to know them a little bit through this episode and also to kind of understand what they're providing and uh, where you can find out more information about the Winds of Change book that they've uh, made for trumpet solos. So before we get into that, though, I just want to take a second and remind everyone uh, just of three things. Number one, the Gold Method app exists. It's a thing that you can use if you would like. If you haven't used it and you don't know what it is, you can check out the link in the description for more information. But basically, it's the way I think about practicing. I've made it available to other people uh, like yourselves. And so if you're interested in how I practice and you want to see what it looks like to work with with logical progressions that tell you what tempos to practice and how many repetitions to practice and things like that. Uh, I would really uh, be interested to see what you think about it. So you can check that out again, the link in the description and use the code GOLD21 for your first month for free. So you can check it out and see if it can help you in your practice. The second thing is don't forget to stick around to the end of the episode. Our mastering engineer, Brandon Yoakum, is going to give us a really nice uh, secret message where you'll be able to kind of get something funny from him or something thought-provoking, uh, something I think is really kind of unique and fun about our show that we do here. And uh, I would highly recommend you checking that out at the end of the episode past the outro. And the third thing is I want to just thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest levels of products, services, and resources to the brass playing community. One of my guilty pleasures in life is diving down endless rabbit holes on YouTube for all kinds of educational content. You can find so much information for any kind of topic you're looking for, and that includes music education resources. Unfortunately, just like on everything else in YouTube, not every source of information is full of great information, and that's actually one of my favorite things about Houghton Horns and what raised my awareness of them long before they ever became a sponsor for this podcast. Their YouTube channel channel has so many high quality recordings and tutorial type videos for players to learn from. And to me, it's just clear that by supporting Houghton Horns, you're also supporting the creation of high level music educational content for so many students to benefit from. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. Whether you are a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you're looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and today I'm super excited to be here uh, with Ashley Killam and Carrie Blosser. Uh, both are educators and performers, and they're uh, co-founders of Diversify the Stand, which we're going to get into. Uh, many of my many of you in my audience are probably familiar with them because they have a, a podcast and a presence that um, I think is something that many of us have seen and are familiar with what they do, but I'm really excited to kind of let them dig into uh, how it started and um, just 
what it is they're trying to accomplish. And then we're going to have a specific project we're going to talk about too, which sounds pretty awesome. So I'm thankful they came on the show and are willing to speak with me a little bit and we all get to learn from them. So before we get, before we dive in here, I just want to say thank you to you both for uh, being willing to give me some of your time. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Absolutely. Um, So we have, we, we figured this out beforehand. We're going to have Ashley start. Uh, with just giving some of uh, her backstory and where she got started in music and how she got here. We'll just let you talk. And then whenever you're finished, Carrie will take over, do the same kind of thing. And then we will just go from there and see where it takes us. So go ahead, Ashley. Wonderful. Um, Well, I'm Ashley, obviously. Uh, (laughs) I grew up, I started out, I grew up in a really tiny town called Greenledge in Michigan. And I did the pretty standard start band in sixth grade. Um, I had a babysitter that played trumpet and I wanted to be just like her. So I started playing trumpet. I also was really horrible at the other instruments I tried in like the instrument petting zoo thing. Um, And at the time, my only goal, I wanted to be in the Spartan marching band and play trumpet there. So I went through (laughs) like all of the years of Uh, middle school and high school, taking lessons, doing honor bands, camps, all states, um, all of that. And it was sophomore year in high school. We took a class, like a band trip to Florida, where you play in like one of the many Disney parades. And we did like a excursion thing that you got to play some of the music from a film. And then they put the like put your recording with the clip of the movie. And at that point I was like, I want to do music like as a career. So I figured I want to go teach band. Um, (laughs) So I went to the University of Illinois um, Urbana-Champaign for music ed. I got my music ed degree there. It was awesome and wonderful. And it was around junior year when I figured I wanted to learn more on trumpet. And so I applied, I went to the Mendez Brass Institute one summer met John Marciando. He told me I should apply to New Mexico. I didn't know New Mexico had music schools. <laughs> so <laughs> figured, great, I haven't moved out of the Midwest at all. So I applied, uh, got in there, and I did my master's in trumpet performance there. And after that, um, I got married and moved out to North Carolina for a year. And then the pandemic happened, then moved to Virginia, moved a bunch. And now I am here doing a mix of online lessons and lectures in person and online and starting this nonprofit and managing a publishing company and a little bit of (laughs) everything completely different from, you know, teaching band and sitting in an orchestra like I thought I would be doing. Yeah, Yeah, that's that's me. That's really cool. I mean, there's a few things I want to I want to ask about after we hear from Carrie, but that's that's so fascinating that. It's like this thing that you heard yourself with music in a context that was really cool. And you're like, that's the thing. That's the thing that makes me want to do music. And I've been asking a lot of questions like this in my podcast recently. Like, how do we share what we do? And how do we sort of get our audience to understand what this power is? And I think part of it is that we've all, most of us, if not all of us, have had an experience like that, where it was powerful and it's like, I want to be a part of this or at least helping to create this for Mm -hmm. other people. So I kind of want to get some of your thoughts on that. But before we do that, Carrie, sorry to jump in here real fast, but please, uh, I would love to know kind of some of your backstory as well. 
I'm Carrie Blosser. I play the trumpet, and it's the best instrument ever. Sorry, everyone else. Um, I grew up in Pennsylvania and uh, was really actively involved with music through my schools. Uh, the church that I went to was really into music too. So um, I was playing trumpet in all sorts of like small groups and just performing a lot. And I really loved it. Um, I actually started on the flute and I hated it and I quit. And then I started again the next year on the trumpet because it was shiny and pretty and like it was loud and I loved it because um, it is the best. But I did, I loved music and I wanted to do it. Um, my mom is a nurse and my dad's a mechanic. So like there was nothing really music going on around me, but somehow I just really loved the trumpet. And I, um, my mom, I kind of liked nursing because my mom is a nurse. And I was like, mom, I think I'm either going to be a music teacher or like a nurse. And she's like, don't be a nurse. Go be <laughs> go be go be a trumpet like go teach music it's you're gonna have weekends off and holidays off and then she saw what our schedules actually look like as musicians and she's like oh maybe I was wrong about that you seem to be working all the time <laughs> maybe even more than like a nursing degree but after the pandemic I feel like we all need to spend our time saying thank you to anyone who works in uh, service hospitals and, and that sort of thing too but yeah. Um, I did my bachelor's in music education at Messiah College in Pennsylvania. Had a phenomenal trumpet teacher, Bill Stoman, who was really supportive. Um, and I really like kind of liked how he was able to like work with the whole studio and he conducted the group and he did all these different things that I thought were really cool and interesting. So that kind of started me on my path of that I wanted to get my doctorate. Like I, I knew I was going to do like a doctorate in music, like as when I was like a first year of my freshman year of college, which I think is weird, um, but I was very determined to get to that point. So I played in all sorts of groups. I marched in a drum and bugle corps. I played in brass ensembles and, you know, jazz bands and orchestras and, and anything I could find, trumpet-related things. Um, moved to Colorado, did my master's degree um, there in, in both performance and music education. Um, had done some teaching at that point, but I moved to Texas after that and taught middle school, high school band. So I was like the only director in kind of a really small town in Cooper, Texas. And that was really fun. Uh, a lot of work. Um, but again, I, I'd always knew that I wanted to do my doctorate. So I spent a few years teaching, got some great experiences, worked with a lot of really great kids um, that are now all adults and married and having kids, which is like weird to see <laughs> as a teacher. Yeah. Um, but it's really awesome. Like a lot of them still keep in touch and, you know, they see projects I'm doing and they're like, yeah, that's really cool. Like, can I call you Carrie now? I'm like, yeah, it's been like 10 years. You're fine. <laughs> Call me. It's fine. Um, uh, moved back to Colorado cause I love the mountains and I did my doctorate in trumpet performance. Um, as I was finishing there, I got a lot of really great experiences working with the studio and teaching, you know, undergraduate students, sometimes graduate students that were like music ed students. Um, I was able to like teach lessons, build a huge studio when I was there because I was there for a few years and a lot of my friends graduated. And that's the nice thing about being local in an area for, I s took a really long time for my DMA. It took like five years, but I accrued like this massive studio. Um, so I was kind of making a full-time living teaching, which was awesome, but I was kind of at the like teaching six days a week 10 hours a day and like private lessons and I was doing some master classes in schools and I was helping out friends who were band directors and being a sub some days and doing all these things which is great but um, I was kind of approaching the burnout phase of teaching just because student loan debts are big and you want to pay those off sometime um, I 
finished my doctorate, was teaching. I had always wanted to be in a military band. That's like something I like another goal that I had. And at the time I was 34 and you could turn 35 in boot camp if you wanted to go and join the Navy. So I actually joined the, I won a job with the fleet band, um, the Navy fleet band program. So I am currently a military musician and I live in the Chicago area. So I play with Navy band Great Lakes right now. Previously, I was uh, at Naval Station Norfolk with the Fleet Forces Band in Norfolk, Virginia. So, uh, so I'm kind of I've kind of done a lot of everything, which I like. Um, I I don't like to say no to opportunities. So, kind of part of the reason why I joined the military when I did was because I was approaching the age of I needed to do it or I would never get that chance. So I did that. Um, and during this whole pandemic time of being stuck at home, I did a lot of recording projects, but um, we'll probably talk about this later too. But I had a lot of anxiety about being at home and I was just really worried about the world and my family and, you know, my in-laws and students and teachers and like everyone that I knew, I was just kind of really worried. Um, so I was trying to do a lot of volunteer work in the trumpet community, which is actually where I met Ashley. Um, we were both volunteering with the International Trumpet Guild on a couple projects and we're like, hey, what about this? Could we do this thing? So we started Diversify the Stand together, kind of out of not necessarily bad things, but we wanted to make some change and we wanted to make it, not that we're impatient, but we knew that we could do it faster than waiting on someone else to do it. So it's kind of where we we met and started making some projects. We're both trumpet players, so it's it's nice to find a kindred spirit and a, and a good partner to start this great program. Yeah, you're preaching to the choir when you say that it's not that other, you're not saying anything about other people. You just understand what you are willing to put into it. And I think impatient can be the right word. There is, I've learned the virtue of patience over the time of being impatient, if that makes sense. Um, but I totally understand and I totally identify. Um, and I, I, there's some things I'd love to pick your brain about as someone who is also kind of trying to put things out there that I think are valuable and just some of the struggle that comes along with that. Um, anyway, we'll get to that though. Uh, anyone who, it's cool to hear both of you having made this decision, you wanted to you know, have a life in music. Uh, and anybody who's done this, what I've learned through asking these questions about, you know, what's value about what we do? Like, mm -hmm. why would someone, you know, give their life to the pursuit of, you know, musical, um, you know, trying to create beauty in the world mm -hmm. through music and trying to have a career through it. Anyone who's done this believes in, in enough to 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 do that. So I'm kind of curious if we start with you, Ashley. Kind of similar to um, what I was just speaking to. The, maybe the way to frame this question is not just what do we do as musicians, but what do we feel like we make happen in people's lives? Like what happened in your life was that really special moment where you saw it and you're like, I want this more. Right? That's what you it sort of brought about some sort of excitement or inspiration, or maybe you can speak to what you feel like that moment was, and then just translate translating that into some language about what you feel like we make happen in the lives of our audience or in the lives of our community. I'm just curious for your thoughts, and I'll ask you the same question uh, as well, Carrie. Just what do you feel like that is? What do you think that we as musicians, whether it's symphonic musicians or you know chamber musicians or soloists, yeah. whatever, what do you think we make happen in the lives of the people who interact with our art? Oh my gosh, that's so hard. Uh, I think there's just so, I mean, there's so many paths we can take what we do. And I know 
when I was going through school, it felt very pipelined. Like you either teach or you play in a group. And the one thing that I try to make clear um, in any to anyone that I talk to now, and something that I think if I was going through school now that I'd really like, there's just so many more opportunities and things that you can do and experience. And if, you know, if something hasn't been started, you can start that. Uh, Carrie and I know a lot of people in like the multi-tracking scene, which I didn't know what that was just a couple years ago with, you know, recording mm -hmm. yourself multiple times and, and playing with yourself. Um, I didn't know commissioning was a thing a couple years ago. And there's just all of these paths that really makes music limitless now, oh. which is cool. And I think it's important for myself and for educators and performers, you know, anyone that we work with and students we have, just making it clear that people can do anything mm -hmm. that they want. And just because it hasn't happened doesn't mean yep. it can't happen. Like with what Carrie and I have started, there really was no user manual on how to commission 12 people at one time. But we knew we wanted to make something happen. So we figured out how. And I think that's what's so cool and special about music. And especially with trumpet, because we've, it, Carrie and I have interviewed a lot of people that have just kind of been chameleons and trumpets in everything. Um, and so it's really cool because we can involve ourselves in all of these different styles and ensembles. And there's just so many possibilities more than just sitting in an orchestra or teaching band. Not that there's anything wrong with those careers. There's yep. just so much out there, especially in this day and age. Yep. Yeah. Gary? Hopefully yeah. that helps yeah. give an answer. Absolutely. Yeah. What <laughs> yeah. are your thoughts, Gary? It's great, Ashley. I love it. Yeah, I think um, like things that I've been really thinking about, like, like the musical connection, I think that, you know, again, we talked about like I'm a military musician, so I play taps for like funerals. And like, I think the the thing that I always think about, like as a trumpet player, right, we're always like kind of focused, like, oh my God, my chops feel like crap. Oh my gosh, should I take a big enough breath? Can I play these notes? Like we're thinking about all the mechanics behind what we're doing sometimes or like when things don't feel good. And I unfortunately have to play a lot of performances where I don't feel good. It is cold. My valves are frozen. Good thing we don't push down buttons for when we play taps, you know, like, <laughs> thank goodness for this. I've got a plastic mouthpiece, you know, like I, I troubleshoot the best that I can, but it doesn't matter how I feel. Um, and it doesn't even matter what that comes out of my bell. It's important that I'm there. And like that almost is like the musical connection, just like a real live person that's like trying and playing. Um, I don't know if you've seen these things, but they actually have like fake um, instruments that will play taps um, when they don't have like actual trumpet players that can be there. Um, so like I, I always say like, I don't feel bad if I miss, if I crack a note because I like, they know that I'm a real person that I'm there, which uh, like, you know, I want to be, I want to play it perfect for them and for those people and for, you know, and for myself a little bit too, you know, I want to leave feeling good. Sure. Um, but I think sometimes like I don't have to feel great in order for someone else to get a, a really musical performance from me or for that to be really deeply emotional and impactful for them, which is cool. Um, and then I, I've also been thinking a lot about, um, because, you know, again, we, we've been commissioning these 12 composers, as Ashley mentioned, like, and that pipeline that you talked about, I, I think I was always really focused on the me playing for audiences or me playing to do this or me doing this. But now I feel like I'm part of this, like the pipe is like, it's, it's behind, it's like, it's going different ways now. It's not a one directional thing. Like I'm thinking about the composers, like 
I know them. Like they're people that I've talked to and I'd like know about their life. And sometimes I see their cats when they visit. We like have a Google Hangout, you know, like we, we, I know their family. I know their, I know their animals. Like <laughs> I know about them as like a person and I'm playing their music and I'm sharing that music with other people to play and I'm performing it. So it's like this much deeper, like cooler, more awesome part. Um, this part, again, this Diversified Sam project is so cool because we get to like, take these composers like and help everyone make a more personal connection with the music that we're playing and you can't do that with a composer that's not living um because you can't ask them any questions so it's it's cool to ask contact email send your programs support composers and get to know them and then like i feel like that makes my performance of the music even even better for the audience because i i know more yeah i i this is an interesting line of of discussion for me, and the reason why I the reason why I'm so interested and will not stop asking the question is because I believe musicians are really bad at saying what we do and I and and why it's important. I think we get we have been so entrenched in just trying to perfect mm-hmm. our craft, which is an incredibly important aspect. I'm mm-hmm. not trying to pretend for one second that bringing the best possible interpretations mm-hmm. to connect with people isn't important, but but what I am saying is that I think you can sell almost anything with a good enough story. <laughs> and I think we should be concerned with, or at least be mm-hmm. cognizant of the stories we are yep. trying to tell. And that's really what I'm saying is, is like, well, what is it that we do? So using your example, Carrie, about human mm-hmm. connection, you know, we did a concert. I'm going to tell a quick story because I think it'll be emblematic of what we're talking about. With the orchestra musicians here in Alabama, we put on four musician-run concerts. We did everything, right? It wasn't related to um, the ASO proper. We thought we would just do these free concerts for our community, right? And I put together these videos, and I interviewed our musicians, Mm -hmm. and we asked, like, what do you think we make happen in the lives of our audience? And, like, what's your favorite part about being in Birmingham? And things like that, right? And... um. One of the videos that I made, we played uh, a few days ago. uh, And the first thing it opens up with is uh, our principal bassoon is saying, I think what we do is uh, we create human connection through the way that we play the music. And he said, this is something that everybody in the world wants and Mm -hmm. desires, right? Like everybody wants human connection. Fast forward, that was at the beginning of the concert. Fast forward to sort of a faux Mm -hmm. intermission. We just had this woman from a, a, um, she was the executive director of, um, this charity we were supporting. We were mm-hmm. taking donations to support this charity, right? And she was speaking and she's like, I really connected with this because I believe what we do is also creating human mm-hmm. connection, right? And and it's like yeah. in a different way, like the way that it is carried out isn't that becomes like the what mm-hmm. we do, like how is that carried out? But what we make happen is human connection. Now, I think if people... Uh, audience members went to concerts in any fashion and what they what they were expecting was not to hear music but to have connection with other audience members with the musicians on stage to the composers right through the way we played it i think if that was the expectation uh, we would be having a different argument about why what we do is valid than just like are we good at what we do and do we deserve yeah. You know, do we deserve to have a place in our culture because we've honed our craft so much? Like, it's an important part of the conversation. This is why I'm interested in this conversation is because I think, as you, both of you know, 
like you have had to tell a story about why diversify the stand is important, mm-hmm. you know, and you tell a great story because you believe mm-hmm. in it, right? And I think you've been forced probably to, sorry for this ramble, but I think you've been forced to ask, how do we communicate this yeah. to another person so they can connect with what we do? Well, I don't think musicians in like the sort of the general sense understand that this is important no matter where you go. And so bringing it back to you, Ashley, long thing for myself, but bringing it back to you with that framing, what you said is there's so many different opportunities. Mm -hmm. Well, I think one of the reasons people struggle with thinking about all the different opportunities is there's only a few established careers. Mm -hmm. Everything else is you will have to go out there and establish that, which is very open-ended, just like it would be for anybody starting anything new. But what kind of advice do you have for someone who has ideas of things that they could start um, but it seems so daunting and they have to figure out their story and how to execute it and stuff like that. I mean, how does someone get started with that? Or, you know, like, how do you sort of whittle it down to this is an idea worth pursuing versus like just anything and related to that? I'm curious for your thoughts through the framing that I just rambled about for a while. No, that's great. Um, I think it's been so helpful for me since I've started doing research and just figuring out kind of where my personal passion is, um, finding other, other people, you know, how, how they always say there's like the, it takes a village to make anything happen. Um, and it does finding Carrie helped me. I've had all of this like personal research, just kind of simmering on spreadsheets on my computer and finding Carrie was, you know, finding a like-minded person to help make what I started something. And the two of us came up with this idea and we found other like-minded people to the, in these composers that helped contribute to make this book happen um, with just community members that believed in what we had to make it happen. We have, we both have different mentors that, we've worked with on just kind of honing different ideas to make something happen. We've worked with composers to help make contracts happen. All of these things that the two of us have strengths in and, you know, don't have strengths in, we found other people to help us. And so for anyone that's got any sort of idea, just finding someone that you can talk to, to bounce ideas off of, maybe they know someone else and kind of using, we always talk about networking being important and it's it's important in the sense of you find other collaborators that you can use their experiences to help make this idea happen. Because the more people that you know, the more people they know and they can get you in touch to mm-hmm. do anything. Yep. Yeah, I think this idea, um, especially of connection and uh, not just like human connection, but literal like your connections in your career. I, I It's so funny because winning an or- orchestra job like I have, uh, you don't think about that because it's like you sort of mm-hmm. got there on yeah. your own, you know, but the way though generally the world works like a who mm-hmm. you know type situation. So being able to make connections with people who value what you value and being able to find people that will support what yep. you support. It takes, it's, for me, it's been a slow process, but when you find those people you really mm-hmm. connect with, it's just like, oh, great. We just have like another member yeah. of our team almost, even if they're not necessarily on mm-hmm. your team, like just that kind yep. of support uh, is really great. Carrie, do you have any thoughts um, related to any of these things that I rambled about or sort of expanding upon what Ashley said? Well, I'm glad Ashley went first. Although if I went first, I would have been like, find yourself an Ashley. And she kind of said, find yourself a Carrie. <laughs> Um, so that's good. 
um, <laughs> or like-minded in that that way. Um, I think for me, I'm always thinking about like, depending on what I love when people are like, I have this idea for a project. Awesome. I think Mary Elizabeth Bowden is also another great person who's like, I have this idea for a project and just goes. And I love like, she's got so, so many different, I talk about her all the time. She's like my like trumpet hero. Like I want to be her when I grow up. I think I talk about her like every time that I can. Cause I think she's just a fab, fabulous human being. And I just love everything she's doing. Like I kind of just want to be her. So I just keep trying. Um, I think finding, you know, finding a hole in the market or if you're finding like, I'm a part of a bunch of different like Facebook groups and I kept seeing a lot of people asking for similar things, like finding that like kind of that hole in like if you're an academic, right? Like when you do dissertation, you need to find a hole in research, right? That's where you're going to do a project. It's the same in like if you're building a business, like you want to find that spot in the market that isn't covered or you have these friends and you all live together and you want to create this ensemble of this mixed chamber group and there's nothing else out there like it. You can create that. You just got to find the people, build the idea and then delegate your task out. And that's where like having, having, having a group helps. You can do it as a soloist too, but you know, having something specific to you that you feel good about because you are the one that has to play the music or do the admin or spend the time, social media marketing or, you know, editing a podcast or, you know, all of those things. You have to find something you actually like and continue doing. Like, Brian, you're saying like, you know, I, I won my job. You're also doing a podcast and you are also doing this other thing you're just talking about for your symphony. So it's it's not just you get the job and you're done. There's always you always want, for me, I always want a little bit more, right? I want to build a connection or I want to, you know, deepen this, like whatever I'm doing. Um, so I'd say finding, finding your people, finding that hole in the market and then really doing a lot of research and like, how can I do this really well? Um, I think we don't talk about business enough as musicians, like creating your LLC, getting um, um, a, an accountant to help you with your tax stuff. That's a good budgeting thing if you can afford it. Um, they're worth them in the long run because then you know that you have someone that's helping you through taxes. Because to me, I like filling out forms, but like that tax law is really complicated. Um, and that's not something that I would I would rather spend my time, you know, working on the finale edits for our Diverse for the Sandbook than, than doing um, our, our book. I, I don't, you know, I'm fine doing bookkeeping, but like at the end of the day, I'm not going to file our taxes. Like we're going to hire someone to help us with that because I don't want the business to get in trouble. Um, also creating a business so you protect yourself, like your own personal incomes, right? We don't talk about insurances enough as musicians. Like, I don't know, I'm going on a real big off aside here. Oh, it's, um, it's good <laughs> but, though. Uh, yeah, fighting people, asking for help. Um, there's a lot of co consultation stuff you can find that's for free, which is great. If you're still in school, your schools normally have attorneys and lawyers that you can spend like 20 bucks and they can look over contracts with you and whatever. That's really great. Even as a professional, you can find some, you know, some some help with those things. Um, I think that's, those are like really like looking for help, outsourcing when you can, knowing your budget, insurances are helpful. Yes, Ashley. <laughs> Just to bounce off, I had a meeting with a mentor of mine and I have like her like nugget of wisdom taped to my wall because she said, money is currency, currency is energy and know your worth. And that kind of, I mean, goes along with everything Carrie said on, you know, you mm -hmm. need to protect your energy mm -hmm. and know where your strengths lie and what you, we only have a limited amount of time in the day. So what can you spend that on? 
And if you are going to outsource and, you know, pay someone to do something, what is the best use of your money, the best use of that time? So then you don't have to spend all of that energy. Sure, we could like go through and fill out all those forms, but like, it's going to suck. It's going to take way more time than just spending a couple hundred dollars. Then I can spend all of that time doing other stuff. Carrie can spend all of her time doing other things. So knowing that about yourself and yeah. Yeah, that's somebody that's. This idea of your time is your most valuable asset. That's something that I had I had people sort of telling me, um, you know, within the last few years when I started asking questions like that. And it's just to me, it's an unfortunate reality that you won't really get it until you're like maxed out. And then you're mm-hmm. like, oh, I yeah. now understand what you mean by like, it's worth it for me not to do the taxes. Because before it's like, well, I don't want to spend that money if I don't have to. Well, if you had the time to do it, like, of course, yeah. that's what you would do. But when all of a sudden you don't have mm-hmm. time to do that, or you, well, and this is this is something I want to touch on in just a second. But yeah, it's just like, mm-hmm. how do you want to be spending your time? That becomes yeah. the question you ask yourself. And that's not something I really, with all of the advice in the world, it wouldn't have been real to me until I got to that point. And so. And then I was just going to tag on to the second tag on just, um, it's, it's also okay if there's someone who's like sapping your energy, like on social media or someone who always like, it's okay to create a good boundary and like unfollowing or snoozing. I had to do that a lot, like during the pandemic, just like some people, like their humor, it just really drained me. And it was really bad for me, like in my creativity and whatever, like, it's okay. You don't have to follow everyone. You don't, you can create like what they don't even know. Like, if you need to create a boundary, create the boundary. Um, if you need to block someone, block someone. If you need to unfriend them, unfriend them. And that's okay. It doesn't mean your career is going to end. Just be yourself and like protect yourself. If you, if you, t- you can kind of tell, you know, like when something's really like, oh, I don't know about that, or I don't like what they said, or like, why did they say that? You don't need to follow them. You don't have to comment. You might want to comment yeah. and then you might want to block and that's okay. So, yeah. Yeah. There is a, I mean, that's happened to me where there's a few people that once I started trying to share and be like, hey, I'll like help with practice organization and skill development and stuff. There were some people that like, they weren't competitors, right? They were just people sharing ideas. But like in my mind, they all of a sudden became a competitor, right? Like, and so I would, I would digest Mm -hmm. these things and I'd be like, oh, that's like the same thing. I'm, you know, it just got to be this thing. And then I was like, oh, one day I just realized, what if I just followed this person? (laughs) that I don't have to like actually mm-hmm. like see this and they can do their thing. Yeah. And I don't have to like dislike them for literally yeah. no reason. Um, so yeah. I totally agree with that. One thing I would love your, both of your perspective on because we, we're talking about how do you want to use your time? Now we're under the assumption that A, we have limited time. Yes, we all agree upon that. But B, we we live in sort of this place where we have a mix of I have limited time and there are things that I want to do and things that I don't want to do. And of course, that will always exist at some point. But what happens when you grow to a point where you really enjoy all of the things you're doing and you don't have enough time to do them all? How do you begin to sift through and say, well, this is like, even though I love doing this thing, let's say something like full-time teaching, right? Maybe, Kara, if you want to jump in on this. Like, how do you determine that? You're like, I love teaching, but if there's other things that I also enjoy doing, like, How do you determine which is the thing you're going to pursue? Because what I'm learning right now, and this is, maybe both of you will understand this. 
I feel like I'm learning that there's always going to be this dichotomy between this thing that's like, I could do this and make a little bit of money right now and that would be awesome. Or I could pursue this other thing that will make me no money right now, but might have a significantly greater payoff down the road. And how do you balance like where you spend your time? Because like, you got to pay the bills, right? Like you have to do that. But at the same time, like you're taking then time away from this idea that could be much bigger down the road and how much do you sacrifice and how do you choose? Like that's sort of where I'm at. And Maybe there's no yeah. right answer, but I'm just curious for your perspective on how you determine, yeah, how you would go about determining this. Go ahead, I can, Carrie. I can say this actually did happen when I was teaching. It was right before I joined the military bands. Um, so I worked for a couple different studios and I ran my, ran my own studio. And like, I waited tables all through my doctorate. Like I made good money. I love the people I worked with. And like, I, I don't think, I think sometimes people have a negative perspective if you're not working in music. That means that you're less than but if anything, I learned people skills. I learned marketing. I, I, you know, like all of these great skills that we use at Diversify the Stand that I use in my job, that I use as a teacher. Like I learned them from like waiting tables, like working at a front desk at a hotel. Like I lived in, so no, no, um, we need to be really open. And like, if you are working a job that's not music, work the job, pay the bills. And that's great. Um, in those studios I was teaching in, in Colorado, I was at burnout, um, I really enjoyed doing my own studio, and there was one other studio that I really liked the like the flow of how they they did their ma- like makeup lessons and their schedule with me. I really liked, so I was going to keep them and keep my own studio. And then the studio that I had the most hours, but it paid the least and it gave me the highest level of stress. Um, that was where I was going. To, it, it was scary because that was like the big bulk of my like teaching income, but again, it was the most stress and. It's, it wasn't the students. It was just the way in which the studio ran. Um, that was going to be the one that I was going to get, like I was going to cut because I had built everything else up. So I, I look at like what causes me the most stress. Can I financially do it without that specific thing? So that that's more like very job specific um, to that. But it was the most, it, it just wasn't, it was too stressful for me to keep going. Sure. Um, and that studio like loved me and wanted me to teach every day. And that would have been really bad, <laughs> right? Because I'm already stressed. Yeah. And I started, you know, like yeah. it's nothing against it. And that's, I think to me, I get so like involved with my students and their progress. And I want to keep going with them as like as long as I can until they graduate and like, you know, college, whatever. Um, but like that studio was one that I was going to have to make that hard choice, even though I wanted to stay for, with the students. Um, it just, yeah, that was that was how I made that choice for that one. Yeah, and I'm sorry just to jump in here. I don't know if you have thoughts, Ashley. I'm, I would love to hear them, but like I realize we are painting a picture that not everybody is in, right? Look, we're talking about something where some people may not be mm-hmm. at this point where they're having to cut. Some people are just like, I take everything yeah. that I that I possibly can, and so that's kind of why I'm having this conversation. Is someday some people listening to this, they may think that that's not. Like, how could that ever be a reality? But I'm sure all of us never thought for a second we would ever have this conversation with ourselves. Like, how do I cut things? And I love everything that I'm doing. So it's just sort of like a a preemptive. I never really thought I would consider Mm -hmm. this is the conversation I have to have with myself. But like I do and I am. And so that's mostly why I'm asking. It's not like a everybody should be doing this. It's just you may find yourself in this position and hopefully there's a little bit of stuff ruminating in the back of your head from some conversations you've heard. So do you have any thoughts on this, Ashley? I'd love to hear. Yeah, and hopefully my dog isn't too loud. 
he he's been constantly barking for the last couple of minutes, so we'll we'll see. But if you hear a dog in the background, sorry. Oh, good. Um, yeah, I I had the struggle of I moved like every year, every other year. I moved right after New Mexico. I moved um, right after North Carolina for a year. So it's hard to have to constantly reset. So I've been up until now i've been constantly taking everything i have said yes to everything um like carrie i waited tables my entire time in north carolina and i bartended um but in kind of a weird turn of events i mean with the pandemic i wrote my own laying off letter for bartending uh well the pandemic was happening right before we moved to virginia so picked up and reset here. So then it was just constantly saying yes to things when I could, because I couldn't go teach in person and I couldn't do this and that. Um, but after starting both this and Rising Tide, now I'm in a place where most of what I do is the free work that doesn't pay. Um, and I'm thankfully in a place where my husband has a good job that you know he's paying rent. And so I am able to focus a lot of my time while still you know, teaching a bunch of lessons, as many as I can there to pay utilities and grocery bills and things like that, I have more time that I can devote mm -hmm. to the startups because I know Carrie and I had this conversation very early on before we made the LLC on, you know, what is our one-year plan? What's our three-year plan? What's our five-year plan? Where can we take this? Because we're both invested to make this something larger than ourselves, to be able to make a really big impact. And so a lot of this is having conversations with the people that you're working with and just with yourself on kind of prioritizing. I know in my head, I've got, you know, a list of all of the things I'm a part of. And if something gets too big, what can I take away? Maybe that's some volunteer work I have. Maybe that's some extra things I've said yes to in the past. Um, I know, for instance, um, when I get offers and asked to do um, like different lectures and, and clinics, but the school can't pay, I have two people on hand that are current students that talk about similar concepts that they're happy to take free volunteer things to gain experience because I was doing that last year to gain experience. And so I am at a point where I can say no to just volunteering to give my time, but I have people yeah. I can recommend from there so then they can gain that experience to help them out. Um, and so really it's just a lot of reflecting on, you know, if I don't have time, what would be the first thing to go? Because you are trying, there is no right way, but I know like I'm trying to balance the things that I know will help me yeah. and not only me, but just help music as a whole, if I can put my time towards that. Um, but yeah, it's a really hard, it's a really hard balance and a lot of tough conversations to, to have. Yeah. And like like I was saying, when I was in school, I don't think I don't think I could have comprehended having these conversations at all. Yeah. So it's not if you're not thinking about this right now, it's not a big deal. Yeah. But some out some people out there might might get what we're talking about right now. So hopefully that was helpful. We've talked enough, sort of just tangentially about diversify the stand. Let's just talk about it. Let's just dive into it. Um, you sort of talked about how you met, but maybe if there's like a formal way that you present it, so we can kind of get the whole picture of. Um, why you wanted to start it and what you value, and uh, then sort of you know, transitioning into this the, the the solo book that was put out. Just just do the whole pitch. I want to hear the whole thing, and uh, I have some of my own questions that I think 
uh, I hope aren't going to be provocative, right? I don't mean to to do anything. It's just I have like general programming questions that I would be really curious for your perspective because um, you know you're doing this. You're you're in the middle of it. I'd be curious for your thing. So just however you, whoever wants to start and however you want to present it, just uh, let's hear about it. Yeah. So I guess to give a little bit of a background, like even before DTS. So when I was getting my master's at UNM, I took this class called Female Voices in Composition. And it was a class where we learned about just women creators and composers um, throughout history. And our final project was to build a recital for our instrument. So I like did all my research. And at the time, the only composer who I thought was a woman was Pakmudova. But like, you, like Russian names are kind of I couldn't really tell. I, th I thought, but I wasn't sure. Um, but anyways, I started doing all of this research and realized there's so much out there. Um, so I started just collecting a list of works for trumpet by women. Um, and that, I know she knows about this, but Nancy Taylor, I met her at IWBC and she was like, hey, this stuff is really great. You should turn this into a presentation because people want to hear about this. And I was like, okay, well, I don't know how to like lecture in front of people, but great, we'll figure it out. So I kept doing this research and I started to expand because I realized there's so, I mean, as if we think of underrepresented, if we think of composers outside, like our in quotes, you know, quote unquote canon, there's, there's so many marginalized groups. And so my research started expanding into, you know, all marginalized and underrepresented identities, regardless of gender, race, sexuality, you name it. Um, and so when I met Carrie, an email with her, you know, like ask of, hey, I have time, I'd be willing to like volunteer for ITG. Um, the journal editor sent her email my way saying, hey, like this might be someone you'd like to talk to. So I spoke with Carrie about just everything I had. I have all these spreadsheets stocked up and we just started figuring that, <sighs> hey, we can make something happen just to make some change, at least in the trumpet world, if not, you know, larger than the trumpet world. And so we started, Yeah, I don't even know how the initial talk started, but we started talking about just commissioning music because I have some experience commissioning and we figured, you know, when we think of the pieces that we give to early level players, I think of like petite piece concertant, which isn't necessarily an easy piece for an early player, but it's always like the first big solo to give out. If you're not going to use those, like mm -hmm. the Vandercook solo book yep. where every piece sounds the same. So in our minds, we thought of like a Vandercook solo book, except different because it wouldn't be every piece sounding the same. So we just started brainstorming what we could make happen. And we figured that if we made a book that we commissioned a bunch of different composers from different backgrounds and points in their career and styles, it would be a way to not only work with some really amazing people and get students and players of all levels learning about different composers, but it could expand like what we think of as trumpet repertoire. And so the really cool thing about this project that we're, I know we're going to keep talking about is just the different, it hits everything. It's a book that contains all of these different styles because we really tried to put as few limitations on the composers that we worked with so we could really get their voice coming out in all of these pieces. Yep. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, what I miss, Carrie? No, I, know I, I think I it's really good. Some. So we built the book. Um, we 
or it's, it's a progressive book. So it starts with an easier solo and gets harder and harder. And like the more advanced solos, like they're challenging for a professional to play. So like, if you're looking for something, not just for your, like, if you're a pro player, buy the book. Um, Cause there's like, and pieces from like rhythmically challenging, um, like, a little bit rangy, but we're trying to keep the range kind of lower. Like my experience with students is like the things that are really hard is like range seems to be like the make or break for students. Like if you can't play the high notes, you don't want to play the solo in programming. So we wanted, we were pretty specific with the composers that we worked with in terms of range to try and kind of keep it like, you know, the advanced stuff. I think the highest note is like C sharp above the staff on a B flat trumpet. Um, you know, we we're geared it towards B flat trumpet and piano. Um, you know, we wanted it to grow with a student or a professional or a comeback player or like we wanted it to be for everyone. And like we were trying to go with as many different kind of as Ashley was saying, like people from like all points of their career. And like as a performer, you like you might see yourself in like the person that's writing the piece, which I think is really important. Like that connection that I was talking about many, many, many minutes ago, um, you know, you can watch on our YouTube or on our page and the composers talk about their piece and what they want. We're trying to say with it and any advice that they have for performers, which I think like, it's cool. Like, yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I, I guess the thing that it really stands out to me is that you are like putting connection at the forefront of doing it. It's not like, here's just another book. It's like, here's a book and here's the reasons why. And we wanted to make it accessible. We're not just like, right. You know, like, I feel like a project like this could exist just to exist, but you like did it. So it was like valuable to every single individual who's going to yeah. come in contact with it, you know? And so I guess the, really the first question I have is, you know, with underrepresented groups uh, of individuals, uh, regardless of like you were talking about, regardless of whatever particular identity it is, like what is it like for them to have these opportunities? Like what what kinds of contact did you have with these composers and what did it mean for them to be able to have an opportunity like this with for a project that might get out there in a big way and be accessible and people would play their music? What's that like? The, the really awesome thing is that we made sure, even though we wanted to work with this diverse group of composers, we made it clear to them that we love their music. And that's the thing, that's the important thing about just working with living composers. You need to love mm -hmm. their music. And like, I don't, you know, every single piece for trumpet, when we think of like the standards by all these dead white guys, I don't like every single piece out mm -hmm. there. And that's okay. No one judges me for that. I program the pieces that I love and I really care about. So both Carrie and I have done mm -hmm. so much listening and when we asked these composers to be part of this project, one, it was kind of asking, hey, can you put your trust in a project that isn't out, yeah. but we know it'll be really great, uh, and, and join this community, and we wanted to make it worth their while, and not only pay them yeah. a good amount that they asked for, um, but they get a cut of every book. And so that's the cool thing about this book, too, that all of the proceeds either go back to the composers or they go to fund our next book. So the next batch of composers. So it's not like Carrie and I are just like sitting on all of this money yeah. here. Like it's going back to every book sold goes back to them. And that's helped just build this community. So all mm -hmm. of these composers feel like they're a part of something big because they are. Um, and kind of a thing that came out of all of this that neither of us expected was the community that the composers yeah. have created. We did this little virtual clinic in February during mm -hmm. our crowdfunding. 
And they were so supportive on Zoom. They were just like hyping up yeah. each other in the comment section. And then now they're all friends on Facebook. And we see them like comment on each other's statuses and like share things when we share, you know, just videos and stuff. Like they'll share it for each other and they have yep. looked into commissioning each other in different groups that they're a part of. So it's this, you know, like different yeah. wave of thing, this big snowball where we build something because we know it's important for trumpet players, but it turns into all of these connections, all of these relationships that it's just bigger than yeah. all of us as individuals. And this really cool project is coming out of it because there's all of these pieces that mm -hmm. they all care about. And a lot of them, I mean, most of the time when we think of commissioning music, most people commission really yep. hard pieces virtuosic works and big concertos and, and all of this stuff that's hard, a lot of these composers hadn't written for yep. younger players. Um, and they talk about that in their videos when they're going on about it. And a lot of them say that this was a really cool and interesting challenge because most of the time when they're asked to do commissions, it's for the really hard stuff. And so they got a chance to you know, think about early level playing and think about making this music fun so that when people go to play it, it's just going to be stuff that they enjoy. And at the same time, you know, anyone looking through this book gets yep. to learn about the composers, gets to hear, read their bios and program notes written by them. Carrie and I didn't write any of that. Um, and in the book, we like all of their pictures even on the cover, their pictures are front and mm -hmm. center in in their little like pages that you learn about them. It's a big old picture of them, so you can see that it's an actual person that you're working with and that wrote this music, not just some, like, teeny tiny headshot of some dead person, like are in most of the solos that I have. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so oh. we just wanted it to be big and to make this community and, and make this change. Can I? So I, I, I want to ask a different question. I feel like that was, I don't even, that was, that was amazing. So I'm going to move on to the next question. And Carrie, if you want to take this one. What I really what I really respect actually about this is that it's not only are you creating mm. this community, everything that you just said is creating, but one thing that I really respect is that you are demonstrating that like you can just mm -hmm. go do it. That you that you're like this this like deserves mm -hmm. to exist and I care about yep. it enough that you know, instead of saying somebody else should do yep. it, we're going to go do it. And I think that's like I think it's so cool to see that. And, and, and you know, what I'd like to do next is to talk about some of the difficulties mm -hmm. of bringing a project like this to life. What does that look like and where there's setbacks and stuff. But before we get to that, just like what does it mean, like I say, Kara, yeah. if you want to take this, what does it mean to you to be someone who is like stepping up into the forefront and showing people that like this is something you can do. You can just make a project happen like this. Uh, and, yep. you know, what's that like for you? Um, it's terrifying and amazing. And again, I would say find yourself your own version of an Ashley Killam. Um, you know, don't steal her from me. Well, maybe like, you know, she's her own person. But, you know, finding someone else that you can like be in this together because I, you know, it's I, it was awesome. And I we got asked to somewhere else like, you know, oh, what would you do differently? Or like, you know, what were any like mistakes that happened? And I was like, uh, I don't, like, I feel pretty good about everything. Like, we spent a lot of time planning and prepping and trying to think of every scenario. And again, we just picked 12 pretty awesome people to work with. And, you know, Ashley and I make a really good team. 
So like if I, you know, we, we, we balance each other really well. So again, back to what you're saying before, like, you know, how do you make things happen? Like find people that are like easy to work with and like complement what you already do. And that makes everything like so much easier. Um, yeah, it was important for us to not pay ourselves for this project. Cause I didn't, we didn't want to like feel like we were profiting on this, um, things that were scary. We, we crowdfunded most of like all the money for this book. So we just asked people on the internet that were trumpet players to donate at a really tough time, right? Like most professionals I knew were not gigging. Um, and there's still people that I knew like that were laid off their job and they wanted to donate and they did. Cause like $10 from a bunch of people makes a difference, you know, like that's, it makes, it makes an impact. It creates this book. It's a physical, tangible thing. So uh, I don't know how we did it in less than a year. Like we did it in 10 months. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's, that's yeah, unheard wow. of, but we did it. Um, pandemic anxiety, I think uh, <laughs> definitely p- pushed me forward <laughs> uh, in terms of like, I needed to make, you know, I wanted to make my time. Like I wanted to make something big happen, you know, in your home and like, you know, George Floyd's murder. And you're like looking at like the TV, like you're stuck at home and you're watching the news and you're just like, broken, you know, a little bit from like what you're seeing in the world and like making this big impact. Um, yeah. Yeah. One of the things you just said that I'd be curious for you to speak to, uh, I know that I said, I was gonna ask a different question, but now we're here. Um, you said it's important for us not to get paid for this. And it's something that I kind of am interested in hearing your perspective on in the entrepreneurial model. You typically don't get paid for most of what you do in the very beginning. You you essentially put yourself into debt for a very long time, investing in this thing that you you. And so you have to. In my opinion, one of the real struggles for me is: Am I actually committed to doing this twenty years from now, where it might pay off at that point? Right? Like we're it's like you're you're investing in something that's going to last longer than the next six months or one year, you know? So it you have, and like for the pot, let's say for the podcast, for example, like I'm still in, in the red, right? For my podcast, I've invested like thousands of dollars in the equipment and the mastering fees and all the different other fees that come with it, as you know, right? And like, I have, I mean, I've, I have a sponsor, but like, it's not, it has not offset the overall cost. But to me, if I'm thinking, well, I'd be doing the podcast 10 years from now, like, you know, and it's also then the other currency that matters to me is how people ingest or di- digest rather um, what the material is. And, you know, that that's a really hard thing when you're used to like, I teach a lesson and I get paid or I play this gig and I get paid when you step into doing something that's not that. And you're like, I have this idea, like, you're probably not going to get paid for a very long time. And so you have to ask yourself, what makes it worth it for me to dive through? And so obviously, it's clear for both of you that bringing a project like this to life is more than worthy enough of your time. Um, it's just, yeah, I don't know if you have any thoughts on some of that stuff I just said, but like, that's a reality for me that I could not have predicted. That's hard to deal with sometimes. It's like, I'm investing in this thing and I don't know when the payoff is going to be. And is it still worth it for me to do? Like, that's a hard reality sometimes. Yeah. I, I would just say like, for me, like I didn't, the reason that we're saying that it was so important, especially like to me to not get paid for this, like we did all of our own editing. Like, so I did all of the finale edits, like hundreds of hours on compiling, like working with composers to scores and like view score and Sibelius and finale and different versions. So like when you compile that 
and put it into like, I, I felt like I just really wanted this book to look so good. And like, maybe it's just that I don't want any like naysayers out there to be like, well, you know, this, like, if only this rest <laughs> looked like this, it would be worthy of my time. Like, I, I don't know. And it's just me. Like, that's just all on my own personal, like, that's fair. <laughs> like of, I just, I just wanted this to be like as clear from, from us and from the composers. And again, like we're taking parts from them. The stuff they send us looks amazing. It's just compiling it all together. So like the, you know, engraving looks the same and what, yeah. You know, anyway, sort of tangentially there, yeah, but yeah. Um, I just didn't want to, Again, we're asking people for funds to commission the composers. So for for me, it was so important that the money was going to the composers, printing the book, and then like getting the book out there to people. So like that, um, like profiting on someone else, like on a a book that's, you know, diversity felt really, like really gross to me. Like that did not, like I want to support the 12 composers that took a chance on this project. And again, Ashley and I, when we started, we like, okay, how, how, like, how much do we have in savings combined? Like, if no one donates, can we do this? Because we're going to write a contract to composers and we have to be able to pay for it. And we believed in it so much that we, like, if no one donated, we were just going to, like, empty the bank accounts and make it happen. Um, which I, yeah, <laughs> talking about it now sounds a, a bit dramatic, but, um, <laughs> you know, like, it's so important <laughs> to us. Again, like, there's nothing else out there like it. And it's so funny because we get so many people now emailing us being like, this is a great idea. How's it never happened before? And I'm like, I have no idea, but we did it. And I hope more people do it. And if they want to work with us on a book for their own instrument, like we're all in, let's go. Um, Ashley, do you have any thoughts you were meant, you were saying earlier that you, most of what you do now is the free unpaid stuff. So maybe that kind of um, is similar to kind of the point I was, I was making. Do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah. I mean, I think when, this comes back to the initial conversations when Carrie and I were talking, we were like, okay, what is our plan? Like, do we both want to like our goal? We both, you know, want to have a nonprofit. We both want to have positions that we can get paid doing this work, but to be able to get there, we wanted something. Yes. Like some people may be like, Oh, this is a terrible business model because you're not paying yourself. We wanted something that with this first initial project, it can become self-sustaining. And so we put in the initial funds to secure the composers to be like, hey, here's a little bit. We will pay you more as soon as this crowdfunding is done. Um, So we put in enough to start off. But we wanted, you know, we had it in mind from the very beginning that all of the profits would either go back to the composers or before the next book. So then we have that secured. So maybe, you know, book two takes a little longer because it all bases on how many copies of this first one we have, but that's set aside. And then in the future, you know, we can look into when we're thinking of budgeting for whatever, you know, next book we have, we can work in some funds just for editing, you know, and for like, that'll be for Carrie for, you know, the piano part, um, for the designing, we can work that in, but we really just wanted everything to go into the printing and the copyright and paying the composers and doing these initial things. And we were both willing to invest that time. The same thing for with Rising Tide, what I do when I started off, I knew it was all paid or it was completely unpaid, but I knew, you know, as soon as there were funds, it could be a part-time job. And, And it is now. And so it's things like that, just looking into what can be done, you know, what 
effort you're willing to yep. put into something and not get paid. And yep. yeah, think about that long term. Where do you want it to go? And then making it happen to get there. I think one of the, for me, one of the important takeaways is that it starts with an idea that's worthy, right? Like to start with, this can make money is yeah. not as good of a place to start with as this is a worthy idea that deserves to be there. Because I think when, th and this is like kind of what I would like to sort of finish, I suppose, with this part of the discussion or the episode, depending. Um, it it gets so it gets hard, right? Like it gets very difficult. And when, if your motivation is, well, this was supposed to make money, yeah. and you're ten months deep into it and it hasn't made money, like it's it's like okay, well, the justification for the project is not yet happened. Like maybe it's something that we shouldn't be doing, as opposed to this project deserves us to bring life to it, and it doesn't matter if it makes money or if it, you know what I'm saying? Like the, what matters is that it exists yeah. and that will keep you going longer, I think, than whether or not you're concerned with making money. And, you know, there being no guarantees also is a very mm -hmm. difficult thing to sort of, at least for me to yeah. wrap my head around. You think I'm going to do this thing and this is what's going to happen. And you do some mental gymnastics about like what could possibly happen if this thing was established and it could do this and it could make this amount of money if only these things existed. And then you're just like running yourself crazy with all of these possibilities that could exist, but don't right now. And so that's hard for me. And I appreciate, you know, your perspective because it's reminding me that if it's a worthy idea, it's worth it, you know, it's, it, and it's worth it. And of course, again, you got to pay the bills. So maybe it can't be this full time thing. Maybe you're doing it in your side and you're burning the candle yeah. at both ends. But um, yeah, that's just, I, I, pre, I don't know if anybody else understands, like appreciates it, but I certainly appreciate uh, your perspective. Do you want to speak to a little bit of the difficulties of bringing a project like this to life? I mean, the way you've made it sound is we talked to 12 people, they wrote these pieces and we spent a hundred hours putting it in a finale and now we're here. So I can't imagine it was that simple. I think one of the hardest parts that kind of touching on what you just said was the starting, the making it happen. When we, there was a lot of self-doubt on like, we think this is a good idea, which is why we were willing to, you know, empty savings to make it happen. We hope that other people think it's a great idea. And once we did the crowdfunding and we got 109 people to help it out, that was at the point when we were like, okay, other people are willing to invest. You know, we're not a 501c3 right now, so no one cares about the tax write-off. They're willing to help this project happen and help make this a reality. So like, yes, we knew it was a great idea, but it was really helpful to get just the community support showing that, yes, we also think this is a great idea and we're willing to help make that happen. I know that was one of the hardest parts for me, just getting over that self-doubt and knowing, okay, I got to push through. Like when we hit the mark of being able to pay composers, it was like, okay, this is smooth sailing. We can cover the rest. This is fine. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it is that self-doubt of, is this is this worthy? Is this worth it? Can we make it happen? And pushing through that to be like, you know, no, I, I do really care about that. I care so much about these people that we're working with. I care so much about the music that they put onto the paper. And we just have to get this out into the world and tell as many people because this is something that is big. And it's just Carrie and I both have that same passion on. I mean, we've been working on this for under a year now, but it's, we've put all, every, you know, all of our creative energy mm -hmm. into yeah. 
caring about this. And so this isn't some mass produced, like giant publisher does this all the time. This is two people that have spent hours, late nights, many phone calls, making sure that this product that we put out isn't something that we're just proud of, but something that all of these composers are proud to be a part of and something that we know educators and performers can yeah. can really care about. And I know that kind of went off it's on a beautiful. tangent, but... No, it's great. <laughs> Carrie, do you have any... I mean, a lot of it was, at least for me, a lot of it was simple in the fact of we just planned really well. A lot of spreadsheets, a lot of checklists on covering all the bases from, you know, knowing how we wanted to do the engraving, how we wanted to do the designing, how we wanted to start the outreach and the marketing for it. We had lists upon lists to make make checklists and have monthly goals on like, you know, here's our June project, here's our July project. And we stuck to our schedule and our timeline really, really well. Yeah, measure, what is that? Measure twice, cut once, right? Uh, Carrie, do you have any thoughts to add on that? That was, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to yeah, me. Yeah, I, I, I think we just, we're k- keep going back to like the whole community idea. But like again, it's always if when you start projects and you have like a like a like someone else that's like an accountability partner, or you're doing this with a part like an actual partner, like Ashley and I. You know, like when you when your motivation, if you, again you burn the candle at both ends, eventually you're going to burn out. So if you have a team member to pick up slack when your military band goes back to full-time gigging, even when COVID's still kind of going on, you have a teammate that is already planning to pick up when, pick up the slack or pick up the things that you can't do because you have less time. Or, you know, if you're running out of motivation, you can talk to the person, you hype each other back up again. So, you know, I think that as, I think everyone kind of has their their dips and valleys uh, when it terms of like motivation for your project. So like having someone, not necessarily someone that you have to partner the, your whole whatever podcast or business or whatever with, but having someone that can like kind of be like your hype person. Um, that's to me is always really mm-hmm. helpful because then you like, you know, like re you get the spark back going again and like, you know, or like an experience where you're like, yeah, this is what I want to do. I think that's really helpful too. Yeah. Do you have any final thoughts? I mean, we've covered a lot of ground and I think it's all, like I said, it makes sense. It's cool to hear sort of the whole picture. Um, I think if it's cool with you, we could just like... Yeah. Um, we have two minutes and 33 seconds left on our Zoom call here. So with that That's last great. little bit of time, what I think would be the best way to do it is just for to share with everyone where they can find you, where they can find more information about mm-hmm. the book and, and just what you yeah. do in general, just wherever they can find you. Yeah, we're on Facebook, Instagram at Diversify the Stand. Our website is www.diversifythestand.org. And on there will be links to pre-ordering the book, which launches November 1st. Um, there's physical copies, digital combos. Um, we've got more more plans coming soon. But yeah, buy the book, support these composers. Think about you know programming new works in the concerts and with the students that you teach. Yeah, and we have a pretty extensive resource list too. So if you're not a trumpet player and maybe this book doesn't fit for what you're looking for, we have a lot of resources for other instruments, um, band directors, orchestra directors, choir directors, lots of resources there and programming too. Awesome, sounds good. I'm probably gonna get cut off, but I'll just finish out my my little thing here. 
Um, if you need to get in touch with me, you can do that. At that's not spit.com or that's not spit on Facebook and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode, or you had any feelings at all, I'd appreciate it if you leave a rating and review on iTunes and don't forget to share this on social media. Thank you both for joining me on this episode. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Sure. Thank you. This is so great. Uh, I want to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And most of all, I'd like to thank you for listening. Always remember, stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time. Hello, 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 That's Not Spit fans, and welcome to the secret message of today's episode. Today's secret message is just a reminder that we spend an awful lot of time making sure that our socks match, and I can't help but wonder why. So, look for me on the street with a non-matching pair of socks, and I'll do the same. And remember, shh. Don't tell Ryan.